Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is brought to you by the Resource Development Administration. You can count on RDA to find value both above and beneath the surface. And welcome back, everybody, to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, episode 26, with your host, Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. Kirk, how was your weekend? It was pretty good. A lot of travel. Uh, yeah, we were traveling out to Iowa this weekend. So, all right. Uh, went through, did all that. It was a lot of driving in the rain was basically the answer of what it was. I've, I've heard uh, through the grapevine, uh, the grapevine being you, that you've now seen Solo. I have indeed seen Solo. We actually took the kids. They, they, they found out what it was going to be, and they decided they wanted to see it. Uh, my son loved it, as I expected. My uh, daughter wasn't too sure about it. She never likes the, the sort of fight scenes in a lot of these movies. It's usually more the lightsaber battles, but she didn't like a lot of the ones in this, which kind of surprised me. So what's on a lot of I don't think there was any lightsaber activity. No, there was no lightsaber action. Really. It kind it. of tried to shoehorn it in at the end. There was like a combat scene with some sort of laser knife. Yeah, thing. something going on. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, we've both seen it, so we'll do a little review of Solo at the end. And now that Kirk's seen it, we can recap uh, our Solo predictions we did a couple episodes ago. Um, where, which once again, neither one of us <laughs> did all that well. <laughs> we didn't do too bad. We did, I think, better than we did for Last Jedi. Uh, also, in Star Wars news, um, I just saw over the weekend. There's a, a I don't know if it's a rumor or if it's official, but uh, it sounds like uh, that due, due to the poor box office showing of the Solo movie. Disney is either has canceled or they're considering canceling the rest of the standalone films and focusing on the trilogies. Did you hear about this? I haven't heard this. I, I wouldn't surprise me just because, I mean, I think Solo did have a, a really bad box office compared to what Disney was expecting. At the same time, you've got to kind of wonder if some of it may have been the Solo story, that just people weren't that interested in that story. But what's, what's strange to me, like, the, the Solo movie is what I've been wanting them to do, is just peel off smaller parts, tightly focused stories, and just and, and, and not, not make Everything have to fit back into the main storyline. Like there's so much, so many unexplored conceptual areas of Star Wars, and this seemed like a nice bridge to do that. I mean, you're not going to be able to tell a Boba Fett story, you know, an extremely underdeveloped character that is inexplicably beloved by fans, yes. if if you can't get people to come see a, a Star a Han Solo movie, which is like one of the most beloved characters. So this is this. I don't know if it's true or not that they're actually going to cancel this. I'd I'd heard that James Mangold was attached to either a, a Fett film or a Kenobi film. Yep. Uh, he did uh, the Logan movie that was was really good. If you haven't seen that, yep. go see it. Um, so I was I was really excited about that. But I, if they're going to cancel these, that would be a, a bit of a bummer. I think there's a lot of opportunity. Like I thought, yep. Rogue One was pretty decent. I also wonder if maybe what the issue with it is is that they just need to slow down the release schedule. I mean, yeah. we're having a Star Wars movie every year. Um, as bad as it is, like I wasn't that into the hype of the Han Solo movie, I wasn't which either. I usually am. Like I'm usually really usually, yeah, go through the those trailers. This one, I'm like, eh, you know, I'll, I'll see it. Yeah, and I think that was the problem. Is it was just in some sense that it's burned out a bit. There's been you know five of them here in the last you know five years, and I think that was. Well, the- I've heard. Have you you heard all the stories right before um before it came out? There was all the like the director change, and there's like a whole lot of reshooting, and the the budget basically had to be doubled because they didn't like how the film came out, and they were having problems with the main actor, who I thought did a fine job. Yeah, that's great. Han Solo. I mean, he's no Harrison Ford, but nobody is. Yeah, nobody nobody's, expected nobody's him to be. gonna be Harrison <laughs> Ford as Han Solo. Like, if if you expect him to be Harrison Ford as Han Solo, like you need to clone him. <laughs> well, well, we'll get into that into more detail towards the end of the podcast uh, when we do a review, uh, more detailed review with, with spoilers. So uh, you know you want to tune out if you haven't seen it yet, uh, which apparently is most of you since nobody's <laughs> gone to see it. Uh, but today we're going to talk about. Um, 
Uh, IP rights in culture, which may sound redundant, but hear us out. When we say IP rights in culture, we're going to talk about the elements of culture that, that are given IP protection and which aren't, and how when you have different cultures with different sets of values and norms, um, uh, IP rights, which are primarily a Western phenomenon, don't always fit neatly into into other, especially non-Western cultures. Yeah. And I think one of the things to keep in mind in this is it's when we're, when we're talking about this, we're talking about IP as a Western cultural tradition. So we're really looking at this and essentially saying like Americans' intellectual property law right now is mm-hmm. essentially a Western European-based Derived from the Anglo-English legal tradition. I mean, the yep. British, I think, is the source of most of our IP uh, institutions that we have. Yep. And those are kind of spread across the globe. You can go to anywhere in the world now, virtually every country throughout Europe, Asia, Africa, North and South America. They've all got IP offices. They've all got copyright concepts. These, these ideas have spread and been accepted almost globally. Yep, and, and I think the thing to keep in mind though when we're talking about it um, is what we're saying with this. We're basically just looking at it as this is the law. Yeah. It's not that we're going to say this law is right or anything along yeah. those lines. We're looking at it saying this is the law. This is what it How is. How do you then shoehorn in potentially um, or deal with, depending on how you sort of want to look at it, cultures which don't recognize this but may recognize intellectual property rights that are very different from the kind of rights that American culture provides. And again, I think we're, we're really going to be doing this as a kind of lines of American IP law just because we know yeah, more about that's it. that's what we know. Um, most, I think, you know, globally, most IP law is very similar, um, but there are some important distinctions the Americans make, um, you know, in the way we treat it. You know, we're a little more willing to accept uh, patentability in software, for example, than certain other cultures are. Mm-hmm. Um we're definitely a little more willing to sort of accept, you know, certain forms of protection that aren't quite as well protected in other countries. Um, again, we've talked a little bit about it previously in this show, stuff like, you know, the the issue of who gets rights in a song. Is it the artist? Is it the writer? Things like that. You know, the, the American tradition is a little different than even some European traditions are. So it's important to keep in mind when we're looking at this, we're really looking at it as it was sort of, here's the American IP law and what it is. And then how does this deal with these interesting yep. questions of, essentially cultures that don't acknowledge this being an IP law. Yeah, and this is, this is sort of an academic exercise because what the, the, the takeaway from this, I'll give you the sneak preview, is going to be that sometimes you have different cultures whose concepts of things like property ownership or, or intellectual rights simply are not compatible. Yep. And we're not here to say that one's better than the other or, or anything else, but the, the fact of the matter is that the Western concepts for IP laws and property rights have pretty much been adopted globally at this point. We can, we're not going to get into the political reasons for why, but, but it has been. Uh, but it, it still leaves things out. And vice versa, we see, even even though, you know, at this point, most of, I'd say all of Europe has adopted sort of the, the British style of copyrights and patenting, the, even Europe carves out things differently. Europe recognizes moral rights and artists that are inalienable and can't be transferred. Yep. But in the United States, we, we don't really have that concept. We kind of went over this in the graffiti case a we couple recognize episodes some of episodes ago. But it's basically by treaty. Yeah, we, we recognize them begrudgingly because we have to. Uh, but, you know, American commercial transactions kind of proceed on the assumption that anybody can own anything as long as you've got a willing buyer and a willing seller. But that's that's not how it works everywhere. We're going to get into how that uh, plays out. And this, this you know... This hasn't been that big of a deal until relatively recently. I'd say, Kirk, probably our lifetimes. This has really gotten oh, I think to be... definitely this is, you know, if, if anything, probably a, a last 50, if not 25 years phenomenon yeah. 
probably just because of a recognition of the fact that there's a lot of culture which has disappeared and and a desire to sort of make sure that doesn't happen anymore. A good example is during the uh, was it during the the second Iraq war uh, after 9/11 I think there was some uh, some some ancient Buddhist statues I think and I'm, I'm I got the facts yeah, you're, wrong. you're talking about there's some Taliban issues. Yeah, they, they blew yeah. some stuff up, some old some old works of art, you know, like there's there's an argument should that kind of thing be be criminal behavior? I mean, if 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 downloading movies is <laughs> criminal yeah. copyright infringement, why why shouldn't that be? Yeah, and there's stuff associated with the Islamic State as well, you know, and then, you know, destroying cultural artifacts and things along those lines. I think there's a lot of, you know, recognition of the idea of sort of what is what is right in conjunction with with erasing culture, yeah. so to speak. And we're not here to pass judgment on what those policies should be. We're just going to talk about what they are and how they interplay. And I think another reason why this is coming up more and more is, is the internet. The world's becoming more global, more connected. It's becoming smaller. We have more access to information than we ever did before about other people and other cultures. And, and this gives rise to sort of a global cultural cross-pollination with the exception of perhaps North Korea. Uh, <laughs> and even that's probably going to change. Yeah. Um, but as that becomes more widespread, I mean, I've, I've learned more in the last five years about, about cultures I'd never even heard of before yeah. than the rest of my life combined. It's amazing. And in some sense, the things you bump into on the internet and you're talking about it is I, I happen to bump into an article talking about uh, the presentation of um, essentially, for lack of a better term, sexuality in Greek nudes and the fact that a number of them are actually designed to be essentially androgynous depending mm-hmm. on how you look at them, um, which I was fascinating. You know, I'd never heard this. Um, you know, it was somebody who I believe had posted essentially like a PhD paper um, you know, on the internet, and it was one of those things like, you know, I had no idea that this kind of thing had happened. They did this with a lot of photos to sort of show you, you know, how the, you know, basically when you look at the statue from this angle, it looks female. When you mm-hmm. look at the statue from this angle, it looks male. Um, and that was a lot of the presentation of Greek gods and the assumption of, you know, where did that go? And I'd say ancient Greek gods. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, those kind of things are just very, very interesting. And I think we're starting to see aspects of culture like that. Um, at the same time, we're obviously seeing a bit of, you know, the, the <clears throat> you know, echo chambers showing up in the internet too. Yeah. Um, There's and, clashes too. That's what happens when you have different cultures. Yep. Even within within our country, cultures are becoming more divided and then you have clashes between, uh, you know, uh, groups of people even just within one nation. So yep. I think I think overall we'd all probably agree that that more access to different cultures is better. Uh, I think it, it humanizes other people to us and it gives us um, uh, a better understanding of, of just uh, what it is to be human and the human condition. But when it comes to IP and legal institutions, it's not always uh, a neat fit, and this can get tricky. And as we said at the beginning, you know, the United States, obviously, uh, our, our legal systems and our legal institutions are part of what we generally refer to as the Western civil tradition. Western being a re- reference to Western Europe, Western basically, Europe. Uh, especially England, not not the American West, which is really more of a more Spanish, I'd say, if anything. If a little bit, especially little bit. now, but yeah, Spanish and, and uh, indigenous peoples. But our, our legal system is descended from the British common law system, which which even itself is is pretty unusual, you know, in Europe. And so, IP, uh, intellectual property rights, copyrights, uh, 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 patents, are predominantly a, a Western legal principle, although it's been adopted elsewhere. Um, it's 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 hard to fit non-Western cultures into that mold in a lot of cases, and and I think a, a big reason for that is uh, the Enlightenment. You have the Enlightenment through Europe, which was focused on you know what I call the primacy of the individual, the importance of individual mm-hmm. rights, the individual's right to to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, um, and so we we conceptualize rights in the, in the United States as belonging to individual people. We all have individual rights. When you go to law school, you can take a class on individual rights. Um, 
we, we don't have a lot of recognition of the concept of community rights. Yep. Like, like you can't, you're not going to be able to go file a lawsuit on behalf of, uh, you know, the, the people of St. Louis, yep. Missouri, really. And in some sense, that probably also arises a little bit because when we talk about the Renaissance, about challenge against the church, yeah. which really was a universal community at that point in time that essentially held itself out to be the community. Um, and so when you talk about the Renaissance and a little bit of the challenge against the church, you have the idea of the individual sort of, you know, opposing the idea of the individual organization. Organization. So, yeah, when you look at, I think, Western, you know, culture as tradition, we sort of look at it and say we don't want that type of, you know, global cultural, um, in many respects, institution telling us this is what yep. the law needs to be. Well, what's interesting, too, is if you read the Declaration of Independence, there's there's a lot of tone in there, though, about community rights that, yep. you know, when, when, you, when you're oppressed by a, a dictatorial tyrant, you know, tyrannical king uh, like King George, um, <laughs> then, 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 you know, you, you as, as the repressed people have, have the right, nay, the obligation to overthrow uh, the, the chains of, of the people who are oppressing you, which sounds like a communal right, that, that a people collectively have the right to be free, but then when you get into the, the details of what they say, you know, it is, it is the purpose and principle of government to protect unto each individual yep. that right. And that's the primary reason we have a government is to protect those rights. So so you have this sort of an enlightenment tradition of, of what rights are and who has them. People do, individuals do, yep. and who doesn't, which is, you know, animals don't have rights um, and, and communities don't really have rights. But yet, you know, in our criminal law system, what's the prosecution? It's the people versus. Yep. Yeah, and I think that you really do have this idea, but even the, the the thing there is the people versus is representing the, it's because the, the people community the against an individual. Yeah. It's the sovereign. Um, and it's it, it's really the the sum of the individuals because it's not like it's the sovereign against the state. You know, it's not that we, we say, you know, it's the president versus the right. accused. You know, we say it's it's the people versus the accused. And, you know, I think you get into the idea of, of social structures and things along those lines that, that there's a lot. Of, of background here, but I think we do really have to come at this with the fact that, that American law is very focused on the individual. And again, we can look at it and say Europe is not necessarily as much so, but I think when we talk about American law, we're really talking about the idea of individual rights, that everything is individualistic. It's something that's, that in many respects I think is very American. It's something we've mm-hmm. pointed to for a lot of years as to what it is. I think we've realized uh, in, in recent days that there's, there's some danger in that. Mm-hmm. Um, that basically when you have, you know, a real focus on each person being sort of fiercely independent, you end up with clashes where yep. you, you, the independents don't agree with each other and you, you have a breakdown of functioning society. Well, there's, a, there's an argument, I think it's a more of a sociological than a legal argument, that when you have um, a, a, a set of legal systems and traditions that are focused on the primacy of the individual, this naturally gives rise to the pursuit of, of individual desires. Yeah. And, and when those come at the expense of the community, then you want wind up with, um, you know, uh, there's arguments about concentration of wealth, for yep. example, or or the, the excessive materialism of, of our society. Yep. And then when, you know, I would I think there's a reasonable argument that the United States' biggest export is culture, yep. you know, uh, because you have TV and radio and, and, and film all kind of, I wouldn't say they started here, but but culturally as, as a major export, they probably started yep. here more so than anywhere else. In any case, the biggest producer now. We, you know, we are unquestionably the biggest producer of sort of exported entertainment, I think. Yeah. You know, far more, uh, you know, out cultures outside the United States watch American-made entertainment than Americans watch foreign-made entertainment. Yep. Even to the extent foreign entertainment has become popular. I mean, anime is very popular here. Oh, yeah. You know, a lot of people watch like British comedies here, you know, things like that. We have imported a lot of culture, but at the same time, it tends to be sort of groups 
that are going to watch this mm-hmm. specific things. And it's not mass appeal, right? I mean, yeah, it's, it's not mass appeal. You know, you get, you know you're Downton Abbey's and stuff like that. But you know, when they're going to make The Office, they just make an American version. They don't just broadcast a British version here. Yeah, and that's and I think that's a, a sort of key thing to keep in mind that we have seen a lot of American sort of control of culture, for lack of a better yeah. term, where we really have it's it's not that it's been sort of necessarily purposeful. It may have been in certain cases, but what it really is is it's just the fact that we're exporting it. Mm-hmm. You know, Hollywood makes most movies, and so therefore they're exported. You know, the United States definitely takes in movies. We started taking in movies from Bollywood, you know, stuff like that. But they aren't mass appeal. They yeah. don't get huge amounts of, of sort of impact, except for the fact that when you get the occasional one that may win an Oscar or something along those lines. Um, you know, I always think it's interesting when they do the foreign language film at the Oscar. Mm-hmm. It's not the foreign film. It's the foreign, foreign language, language film. <laughs> Which you know, is just a cue for Americans won't see it. Yeah. Because most of us aren't, aren't bilingual. Yeah, and we're not bilingual, and obviously we're going to have to see it with subtitles. Um, you know, but, but a lot of I also think is weird about it is you can technically have a foreign language film made in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you, you can have a foreign occasional. film that doesn't qualify. You, you, get, the, you get the occasional uh, uh, unicorn, too, though, like A Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah. like widespread theater releases. Now, it didn't... It Great was, movie, by the way, it if was. you guys haven't it's, seen it. Now, it's not a general audiences type film. You're not going to have, you know, two, two multiplexes full of viewings of it like you will for The Last Jedi. Yeah. But I think it still probably did pretty well here, despite being, you know, o- overdubbed and having to read subtitles. And there have been some other films that get wider releases like that. I think uh, uh, Iron Monkey was released that way yep. here, and a couple other movies well, Sl- were. Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. taking a sort of example as to what it is, which is another great movie if you haven't seen it. And then you um, also see, you know, the way, the, due to the international market, the way that American films are made now is designed to have more appeal to big foreign markets, yep. uh, notably China. We see a lot more use of, of Chinese and Chinese-American actors or just Asian characters in general in movies that, that they want to market heavily to China. Yep. And, and and so you, you see this this influence of the fact that we're going to export these films and how they're being made. Interesting enough, technically, too, I think there's, a, there's an interesting technical issue there, which is we're now seeing much more where we don't have to have the movies sort of released at different times. I mean, that used to be part of the problem. That was a big deal, yeah. The initial movies were always released in the United States because it took a while to distribute them to foreign countries. The internet's kind of killed that. Like, yeah, the just internet's no- killed it. But <laughs> also the digital release and the yeah. fact that, you know, you don't need to physically ship film anymore. You know, it's easy to do a midnight release at midnight, yeah. you know, Greenwich Mean Time around the world. Yeah. You're not uh, shipping we see film canisters by boat, you know, yeah. <laughs> over to Europe to get mm-hmm. there. And we see a lot of that. I think that's kind of cool, actually, in some sense, that we've made it this sort of global phenomenon. Like, the release is a global phenomenon now, where it didn't used to be. But at the same time, that's a that's a Western thing. I mean, this is an American mm-hmm. thing, and the fact that the, the release matters, that seeing the movie first matters. I also think the, the internet originating basically in the United States, and we are not at an age, age now where we have a, a full generation and a half of people who've grown up with the internet being a part of everyday life <laughs> around the world— and if, if you're on the internet, you're going to get exposed to English. You're going to get exposed to American businesses and American uh, uh, culture even more so. I think, you know, when, when we grew up, it was French, right? It was the international language. If you wanted to do international business, yeah. you had to speak French. I think it's probably English now because of the internet. Yeah. I think it was even becoming English, but it also even matters when we talk about French and things like that. It also matters what you were doing. You know, you yeah. use, like when I was taking foreign languages, you partially picked a foreign language based on what you were going to do. Like German was language of science. Yeah. So like oftentimes, you know, if you were going to be studying science, you took German. Um, you know, if you were definitely going to be doing anything in the United States, you took Spanish just because mm-hmm. of the association with Mexico yep. um, and the other Latin American countries and the association that a lot of them speak Spanish. Um, you know, French because of, of uh, Canada. Yeah, um, Quebec. You know, and then also a lot, the, a lot of the influence of, of the French in Europe. Um, but I think you saw a lot of that. And I remember it was a big deal at that point in time of, do we all need to learn Japanese? Yeah. Um, and you go back to like It was the, the scare in the 80s with the Japanese yeah. are going to buy everything. Well, you know, and I remember, <laughs> I mean, I talked, I've talked about it before. You know, I played Shadowrun, the, the role-playing game, for years, um, you know, kind 
coming through high school and college. And, you know, a big force of that is Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you have the Yakuza, um, you know, as one yep. of the sort of, you know, uh, forces that you really have to kind of deal with, you know, as a criminal syndicate. You have huge Japanese corporations. You have huge Mexican corporations, um, you know, actually coming sort of out, out of it as technology, mm-hmm. um, you know, coming out of Central South America. Um, and those are the, the kind of things that I think, you know, we, we looked at that and really said, hey, Japanese is going to become the dominant language. And they just sort of didn't. Yeah. Um, and now it's now it's Mandarin, right? You have to learn Mandarin if you want to yeah. if you want to do international business because China is a huge emerging market. Yeah, and so I think you're seeing a lot of that is it's there. There's a lot of sort of you know intermixing going on around the world right now um, of what we're seeing, and the internet is definitely causing it. I think without any question, is because it's so available, and that's I think part of this as well. Is it's, as we're as people are becoming more and more exposed to this, people are becoming more and more interested to it, and that's where we're seeing some of this clash with IPA. Yeah. Is it's people are becoming more interested in potentially what is in other cultures, um, both for sort of personal, you know, educational reasons, but as well as for commercial reasons. You know, you're definitely seeing pharmaceutical companies going out and saying, hey, what do tradi- does traditional medicine know? Mm-hmm. You know, what can we get out of the rainforest, out of tribes that have practiced traditional rainforest, that maybe medicine that's useful to us, that are, you know, compounds we just have never encountered and wouldn't because they don't physically exist here and we wouldn't know to synthesize them. Exactly right. Let's talk about what we mean by culture. There are certain things, I had to look this up because I, I, you know, I'm an English major, so the anthropology is outside <laughs> I'm of my physics wheelhouse. major, so. But so I, I, I did a quick Google search for what is generally considered to be culture, and I was, I was mostly not surprised. Uh, but, but one thing didn't surprise me. So here's the things that, according to Wikipedia, are traditionally associated as being universal elements of all human societies. We've got art, music, dance, pretty straightforward, ritual, and religion. Makes sense. Tool usage, sure. And then cuisine, shelter, and clothing. And I bucket them that way for a reason. The the first three, art, music, and dance, I associate with uh, creative expression. The middle two, ritual and religion, are more about... um, I want to say belief, but it's really more about uh, social gatherings, yeah, you know, social and, gatherings. and uh, you know uh, things like that. There's no, there's no question that in many respects, ritual and religion, as much as you, you want to look at it as however you want to look at it, there is a strong social aspect to religion yeah. in virtually every culture. Yeah, and then and then tool usage, I kind of put by itself uh, because it, it's patents, basically. And we'll get into that in a minute. And then cuisine, shelter, and clothing, I put together because my my kids love this the show. You ever seen Naked and Afraid? Yep. Oh, I love Naked oh, yeah, and Afraid. Oh yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, um, but that's always the first three things, right? Food and shelter. That's yeah. what they need, you know? And really, clothing is a distant third beyond that. Yeah. Some of them never get around to making any clothes. They Although, just... th- what I think is always interesting is they always talk about the the, the, the uncomfortability of not being clothed in conjunction mm-hmm. with it. And it is They all those... get over it in like an hour. Like... <laughs> yeah, it takes them a while to get over it, though. And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes yeah. there is Some very much a, yeah. a just sort of, you know, hey, we want to put something on just to, to deal with the fact that we're not conscious of it anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, food, shelter, and clothing are all are all separate, and we'll get into why in, in, a, in a second, because, because they're all basic functional things we need for survival. Some of, these, um, some of these aspects of culture are protected as IP in the U.S., and some are not. Yep. And uh, Kirk's got a cheat in front of them. I haven't shared this with them until just now. <laughs> uh, but I've roughly bucketed these into a couple of categories. I'm curious to get Kirk's take on these. You guys are hearing his, uh, his un, unedited thoughts live here. Uh-oh. I've got things that are, I think are covered to a significant extent in U.S. law, things that are covered to some extent, and then things that are covered very little or not at all. So, Kirk, under significant, I've got art, music, and dance are all significantly protected. Yeah, I don't think there's any question there. I yeah. mean, these things are all well-established. All in copyright, too. 
Yeah, all copyright. Simple enough. Uh, even dance, choreographic, and, and pantomime works are, are covered. Okay, covered to some extent. I've got tool usage because we have patents. I almost put this into little or no coverage because merely using a tool, I think in most cases, you know, as, as we conceptualize traditional tools, probably not covered, but it is possible. I'm going to scoot this up more into actually having more coverage. Okay. Um, and the reason I think it's more coverage is because I think in many respects, tool usage implies the tool. Yeah. Um, it implies something which is, for lack of a better term, man-made. Yeah. Um, Some and sort by, of technological yeah, development. technological development. However primitive it may be. Yeah. And technological developments are unquestionably fall under patents, so I think yep. that that's one of the things we bump into. Now, I had originally put uh, clothing, cuisine, uh, under some extent, but I kind of moved them down to virtually not at all and split them up. So under some some coverage, I've got the decorative aspects of shelter, which would be architecture, yep. clothing, and then uh, you know religious art and expression. And I think what we really get into those is yeah, I think we, we have a functional you know functional non functional yeah. functional decorative. And a year ago, I would have put this differently. We had a case that came out last fall that, yep. that changed this for clothing, especially. Yeah, and clothing said you know hey yes there are decorative aspects of clothing that are copyrightable. Separately po- uh, copyrightable, yeah. And I think that's what a lot of times you get into is it's more looking at it as art and saying these elements have art. There are also functional aspects of it. Yeah. I think that's where we, we get into the naked and afraid type of thing that the shelter of the clothing that's there is very functional. It's all functional it really has yeah. no art aspects to it whatsoever. But once you advance sort of beyond that, there are decorative aspects which are sort of unnecessary. Yeah. And and really to the extent we talk about cultural aspects in these things, they probably do move more into the protectable yeah. just because what we're really talking about in cultural aspects is the decoration the ornamentation. Yeah. For clothing, for example, once it covers the body and provides whatever protection you're seeking, the design beyond that is all is all effectively arbitrary. And that's yep. what we would think of as being part of the art or, or the, the culture. Although you could argue that in cultures where certain parts of the body are or are not covered by clothing, that reflects maybe a normative judgment of that culture as to what should or should not be uh, clothed. Yeah, there's some really interesting, I think, when you get into the idea of clothing and what is functional versus non-functional, of, you know, definitely different cultures have concerns of showing different things mm-hmm. um, I think there's you know and, and sometimes even highlighting um, yeah. you know different different aspects of the human body you know and the, the one I just immediately think of is sort of the classic and maybe in the western tradition as to what it is the, the you know dress is too short for Sunday <laughs> um, you know sort of concern that you have with it you know the idea that you can't show your knees or something yep. along those lines right there is a very specific cultural tradition um, as to what clothing can and cannot cover and it's very specific even as to where you are going and what day it is yeah um, so yeah, I think you get into those those types of things with it. One of the interesting things I think is that you know there definitely is clothing has a functional aspect to it. Um, for you know, for some form of protection, you know, we look at it and say, you know, yes, if it's cold, we require clothing. I mean, we are, you know, we are hairless, you know, for the most part, you know, animals. We some don't, more than others. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely lack, um, you know, sort of the 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 ability to have the protection that a lot of animals just have naturally. Um, and so you can look at it and say, there's a functional aspect of clothing which is simply necessary. We yep. could not exist in cold climates without some form of of you know additional skin on top of ours, which we obviously traditionally used animal skin and now yep. moved to synthetics for. Well, the species isn't uh, originally an African primate, right? Right? Yeah. So, so you, you're in a hot savanna environment where you really don't need a lot of excess body hair. Yep. And, and then that, we migrate to cold climates where you can't survive without something else. Yeah, and you know, some of that can be seen as adaptability. But even in hot climates, you definitely still see, I think, you know, aspects of clothing still being used, mm-hmm. the idea of coverage. One of the things I always remember when they talk about psychologically that, that you know, it, one, we're used to clothing, but also how we feel, the idea of being naked actually makes you feel uncomfortable, mm-hmm. even if you're alone. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly if you're outside, if you're something like that. And that's actually the aspect they play 
playoff of naked and afraid. Yeah. Naked and afraid. Well, that's the hook to get you to watch the show. But like once you start watching it, you pretty much forget about that part. Yeah. You're just fascinated by watching these people try to survive. But I think part of the thing is for the the people participating in it is to make them uncomfortable right off the bat. They have to you get deal with this, you know, aspect of you know. And you think about it, the idea of, of walking out into the jungle with literally nothing. Well, and they got bare feet, and they step yeah. on things, and they step on you know bugs or scorpions, and they get bitten by insects and gnats yeah. all night, and and uh, it's just oh my god, it looks miserable. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing where we look at it and say, you know, yes, there's there's a there's a risk, you know, there's a, a danger we see in not covering ourselves. You know, I mean, it even is is for us, you know, generally we see, you know, the idea that you cover yourself from the sun, you cover yourself, mm-hmm. protect yourself from mosquitoes. You know, there's there's a lot of aspects of clothing which we see as sort of being necessary regardless of where wherever we are. Well, here's what I've got for a covered very little or not at all. Uh, shelter itself, yep. uh, structures. Uh, clothing itself, yep. other, taking with the decorative elements. Cuisine, which we'll talk about in a second, yep. uh, but which I just mean recipes and, and food. Uh, religion, and this is setting apart the expressions of religious beliefs, the beliefs themselves, the religious rituals and whatnot. Yep. Which we talk about in our second episode. Yes. Actually, if you guys want to go back and, and see some stuff, we talk about the idea of what is religion per se um, and yep. what does the law handle that. And then I've got ritual more broadly, social rituals, social protocols, things like that, yep. things we all just kind of do all the time. A good example and one that I've actually been involved in just sort of recently is the idea of like line forming behavior. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that essentially whether or not you form one line, multiple lines, how people get into lines is is sort of recognized as being a very social construct. Um, but interestingly enough, most, social, most societies have some form of line forming behavior. Mm-hmm. But the nature of the types of lines and what we see as being um, – good lines is different. So the example is in the United States, we tend to prefer a single line, mm-hmm. even if it breaks at the end into multiple sort of like checkouts or something like that. Whereas in a lot of other cultures, they actually prefer multiple lines that are always formed initially as multiple lines. Yep. So yeah, there's a lot of sort of things we look at and say that's a social ritual, yep. um, which obviously has no protection under IP. Yeah. And then you've got broader social rituals like, uh, I mean, most societies have some sort of, of fall harvest festival of some kind, whether it's an Oktoberfest or uh, Thanksgiving. There's a lot of sort of... It's it's the end of the growing season. We got to hunker down and survive for the winter. Yep. Uh, you know, we, obviously for for the most part, this isn't a problem anymore. You know, we're not going to starve over the winter for the you know most of us. Um, but we still have these traditions we carry forward to be grateful for a successful harvest yep. season that we've stored away enough to sur- survive when there's nothing yep. to eat. And spring celebrations similarly. The sort of winter yeah. is coming to an end. Yes, which, which we celebrate now for different reasons because yeah. being cold sucks. <laughs> so the one thing, so and I think you'd agree, all those virtually no protection. Yeah, virtually no protection. On any okay. Of those. So what's interesting? I got done with this list and I thought you know what, we're missing an enormous category of important cultural works. Literature yep. is not on here at all. And I kind of thought about this, and I think the reason why is that these, what's listed here, are cultural elements common, universally present in human societies. But literature is not, because not every society, and I, I've, I've seen some people say even most historical cultures, didn't have any form of written language. Yep. And so I, there's I, nothing to write. Yeah, we definitely have literature missing. We also have language missing. Um, language enough, itself, yeah. You know, language itself is missing. Also generally not covered. Yeah, generally not covered as, as well. I think without we did an episode not on covered. that. <laughs> um, yeah, there's also there's a prior episode on that as well, on the coverage uh, of language. But yeah, I think the idea of literature, a lot of it has to do with the fact that even being a Western-based tradition, there's a lot of things that are not written down. Mm-hmm. And and writing is really a relatively recent concept. Now, interestingly enough, a lot of IP concepts arose with the creation of writing. I mean, really, copyright came into play because of the printing press. Yeah. Um, and so... It's one of those things where it's kind of interesting that we've sort of seconded that that's not an aspect of culture, but that is, in some sense, the driving force of culture which created intellectual property. It certainly is now. Yeah, it definitely is now. 
Um, well, that brings us to our first real real issue, which is literature versus oral tradition. You know, literacy itself is sort of a recent phenomenon. Uh, and so I have I've saw a source, uh, I don't know if it's accurate or not, but uh, a, ling- a linguist, a linguist, linguist, linguist. linguist. Right. Linguist. Linguist. Saying that most languages that have ever existed uh, in the history of mankind did not have a formal writing system. Yeah. Or if they did, the writing was prior to the invention of papers and things that could survive that was scrolled on bark and things like yep. that. And uh, and we just don't have any record of, of what those languages were. Uh, but modern copyright laws require that anything protectable be fixed in a tangible medium of expression. It's, it's the almost elementary requirement. Yep. So right off the bat... If it's not written down, it's not copyrightable, even if it would otherwise be eligible yep. for copyright protection. Now, obviously, modern, we can do video recording, oral recording, stuff like yeah. that. But this is very modern technology compared to copyright yeah. law. So, yeah, it's very interesting that we basically said, hey, you know, for the first few hundred years, copyright law existed. We basically said things that were spoken were not. Now, I think part of that was because how exactly just as a legal matter do you yeah, how do you, what how was do you actually spoken? It? And to your point before, we, we had the copyright because we had a printing press that can produce copies. Yeah. But if you are, say, an indigenous people that don't have printing presses, there's really no need. Yeah, there's no need to have a, a, a prohibit prohibition on copying because yeah. it's there's nothing you're to, to copy. learn the story and you're kind of supposed to. Yeah. You know, that's it's, the, it's oral tradition. Yeah. Yeah, so so you have so you have sort of a baked in presumption in Western IP that that, that one presumes a literate population, yep. and and presumes that your your canonical uh, cultural works are going to be in writing. If it's important, somebody would have written it down. Yep. But that presumes you have the ability to produce these things. So so right there you have sort of baked into a legal institution, um, you know, a little bit of the history, the technological history of of Europe, and and the the you know what I would say are the subjective values of of Western Europe. At the time when these things came up, what what is important is written down. Yep. And if it's not important, we're not going to keep track of it. It was written down. It's also the other thing that sort of bakes into it is the idea of, you know, when you have these printing presses and you have the assumption of it, you've got a very capitalist piece sort of built into mm-hmm. here automatically as well with the idea that, you know, hey, we want you to be able to protect what you yourself are doing. Um, you know, again, and the idea that, hey, if you owned the printing press and you originally wrote down this work, you got it down and you were printing it, you were entitled to some compensation for doing that. We're, we're almost rewarding the creation of written work as well. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind that, you know, the copyright tradition does have this idea that sort of rewards those who yeah. write things down. The idea is to encourage people to m- make this stuff and distribute it. Yep. And, 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 and to give people an incentive to produce these things, which is why, in theory, it's why copyrights last so long. We want to make people see the value in, in putting the, the front-loaded effort in creating yeah. these works. It's a storage of history, too. I mean, I think yeah. and that's, you got to kind of wonder if some of this as well is the Europeans sort of looking at it and saying, we wish to preserve history, um, which I think in some sense is also a very Western concept. I mean, as much as we sort of look at it and say, I think that most cultures have a desire to preserve themselves and preserve their culture, um, I think there is a, a, especially Western European desire to sort of remember history and mm-hmm. not forget history, um, all the way back to probably you know feudalism when the idea was you know hey you had to remember families you had yep. to you know remember all the the geneal- uh, genealogy and stuff like that to you know sort of you know coming out of that and the idea of like recording genealogy you know in the family Bible and, yep. and things like that you have a lot of this idea of like history should not be forgotten. Whereas I think there's, you know, you can easily have cultural traditions, and I, mean, I can't think of any right off the bat just because I'm not familiar with enough of them, but that said things should be forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would seem to be very reasonable. Well, ironically, of, we see that in Europe now, the right to be forgotten. The right to be forgotten, yes. Something that we don't have in America, which, you know, in America, is it old? Well, then bulldoze it and build a new one. You know, that's kind of... Yeah. I mean, it 
changing. We're starting to value older things more now. I think you see that more more on the East Coast, uh, where you have more older things. Yeah. But like our, our paralegal just got back from a trip to uh, to Europe, and her comment to me was, "Everything is so old. It's all yeah. been there for so long." And of course, you know when these when these buildings were built 800 years ago, people didn't grow past five feet tall, so yeah. everything's really small and compressed. And yeah, and you have the problem of how do you put indoor plumbing in it, or yeah. you know heating systems, forced air heating systems, stuff like that. Yeah, it's there. There is this idea of sort of you know what is it what does it mean to remember history versus forget history, and it does seem like it, as a society we're much more interested in remembering history now. Um, the example of like I can see stuff where in conjunction with remembering versus forgetting as well is just quite frankly the way different cultures handle their dead. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times it's it's very important that there be sort of physical markers, mm-hmm. you know, or physical things to remind us of. Whereas other cultures, it's much more a just sort of memory yeah. um, tradition. The example Oral I just think tradition, of, again, yeah, I just think of the um, I can't think of the the Disney movie that came out recently on the Mexican Day of the Dead, uh, Coco. Okay. Um, yeah. And the idea in Coco of the discussion of what does it mean to be truly forgotten? Well, it's all about um, memories and like having a photograph on the. I don't. I don't know enough Spanish to say the, the table that they yep. put all the pictures out and all that kind of stuff for. Um, what, what is it? The Day of the Dead. The Day of the Dead. Yeah. And and the real sort of key thing behind it is that you're not that the dead are not forgotten. That when they become forgotten, they fade away to sort of nothingness. Yep. But so long as they they're remembered, they exist. Um, and it's all about memory, and that's yeah. one of the key things in Coco. If, if you've seen the movie by now, if you haven't seen it. Go see it. Is is the fact that you know this person's fading because the last person's dying who remembers them, mm-hmm. even though nobody realizes that that person remembers them, and that that's an important aspect of sort of you know, in some sense, religion, but also culture. Yeah. So so you know. The the takeaway from that from this part is that when you have you know cultures that rely or place more value in oral tradition than written tradition, or that just didn't develop a writing system until recently, like you know this conversation would be very different a hundred years ago when you have you know you're still uh, dealing with a lot of conflict and and. Uh, um, um, acrimony between the United States government and the Native American tribes and you know the development of, of written language forms and a Latin alphabet for all these native languages is still developing. I mean, even now, so many of these these tribal languages have, have been entirely lost or nearly lost. I was looking up, I'm from Iowa, and I was you know just out of curiosity researching the Iowa people, uh, who of course are no longer in Iowa, they're in like Oklahoma now, um, and, and their language, and there's very few native speakers left of, of that language. So yep. these things are disappearing and if there's no written way to memorialize it and somebody to, to teach how to speak these languages, they're just going to disappear. So anyway, now a lot of this, I would say, winds up being moot in practice because these oral traditions and these stories uh, that, that, that you know, characterize all these different cultures would probably all be public domain now anyway. Yeah. So even if there was a writing system in place for, say, the Iowa language and the traditions of the Iowa people, those stories, if written down back in the day, would now be public domain, just like everything Hans Christian Andersen ever wrote is. Yeah, I mean, we look back and sort of say, you know, a lot of these cultures and a lot of the things we're talking about are ancient. You know, these are yep. things that have existed for, you know, hundreds if not thousands of years. Even at the longest, you know, sort of guess of copyright, mm-hmm. it's still a hundred years. Yeah. So it's very readily that you know we've got we've got things that would become public domain had they been written down. Now, obviously, one of the first conflicts that that creates is since they're not written down, when does such copyright attach? Would it attach exactly. if it is written down? This makes it really complicated. So. Let's say the first person to memorialize in writing a story of an indigenous people um, does that now. 
So obviously there would be there should be some sort of copyright in the story itself. But then if somebody else retells the story, is it a derivative work? Yep. And and the real issue you get into it with it here, I think when you're talking about oral tradition, is obviously I think and, and I think science would support this. Oral tradition retelling the story will change based upon the yeah. storyteller, based upon you know how it's told. So an individual putting it down into writing is going to create their own version of it in some respects, even to the extent that the story is is common. We look at that and say that's copyrighted. We, we've already acknowledged you, know, you can have different co- different versions of Romeo and Juliet, all of which are copyrighted. Um, you know, different versions of the same story, Hansel and Gretel, to sort of pick on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely, when we're not saying what about the retelling of the same story, when we talk about hey, you can retell Romeo and Juliet however you like because the original Romeo and Juliet is outside copyright. Um, but when we look at this now and say yes, but this is the first copyright that attaches, we bump into is it a derivative work? What is the underlying work upon this which is this is based? And when we're talking about something which is an oral tradition, how do we actually know mm-hmm. what elements of this are common versus what elements are specific to the speaker? And we we see Disney doing this, right? So for the longest time, Disney was primarily focused on um, uh, Danish uh, folklore, basically, the Han Christians yep. Anderson works, and maybe to a lesser extent, some Germanic works. Uh, but we've seen them branch out more. Uh, you've got Pixar does a lot of these. You've got Coco, which is based on uh, Mexican tradition. And then uh, the most recent Disney princess, Moana, which yep. is based on, I, I don't know enough about it, but I think it's sort of an amalgamation of the various beliefs of, of Pacific Island peoples. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's it's essentially Polynesian uh, in conjunction with what it is, and it's again, I'm going to show a lot of ignorance in, in what it is here. I believe quite a bit of it is Hawaiian. Um, it seems to be, um, and but definitely it's it's Polynesian tradition. Yep. I think you, the, the waterfaring race, you know, the yeah, the, the wayfaring, the that. reverence for the ocean. Like I saw a making of video and how they how much time they spent talking to different different native peoples and getting their input on um, you know what you know these these stories, these mythical figures, uh, the prominence that the ocean has in their culture, uh, the wayfaring tradition. Which I t- this is how good Disney is. Watching that movie, they make getting on a boat. <laughs> and just sailing off into nowhere uh, for thousands of miles looks super fun. I know. It does, it's, <laughs> they do a great job with it. The other thing I have to admit that I really love about that movie, and I think it does relate at least to that type of cultural tradition, is the fact that the island is a character, the yeah. ocean is a character, and they're, they are characters. You yeah. know, they interact with the, the people, things like that. It's not that they're just there or anything along yeah, those lines. Yeah, the ocean's lines. even anthropomorphized a little bit. And, yeah, no, yeah. admittedly, that's putting some Western culture onto it. Is. It. it is. Um, but I think that the, the presentation is very cool on that and I one of the ones that I really love and it's I still I love the the scene where she's alone in the boat in that and is basically singing to the ocean yeah um, as to sort of learning about herself and things along those lines and that that becomes this pivotal moment in that yep. movie um, of her understanding herself and it's her understanding herself in many respects by talking to the ocean. Yeah. And I, I don't, I didn't, maybe it happened, I didn't hear anything about it, but I didn't perceive a whole lot of cultural blowback against Disney for any sort of misuse or misrepresentation. I know they took some liberties with uh, the Pantheon Maui, I think had a, yep. a female consort that was sort of left out of the story. Um, and I, I did hear some people commenting on that, but I, I mean, I, I don't know a lot of people who are of, of uh, Polynesian descent, the one, uh, a, a girl I, I grew up with um, was just thrilled, just happy to be represented and happy yeah. to be, I just love the movie. Um, it also helps it's a fantastic film with a yeah, great it, score. It's a, it's a very good movie. And, it's, and again, it's, I have to admit, what I think is funny is it's, my kids love Moana. Um, when we first saw it, I was kind of like, this is a good Disney, it's a mm-hmm. solid Disney. You know, yes, it's not Frozen, but 
I'm not sure anything ever has been or will be. Well, there's no romantic interest in the entire film, which I thought was a welcome departure from prior. Yep, you have uh, the things, you even have them making fun of princesses. (laughs) Um, My favorite line of that is still, you don't have have a talking animal companion. You have a talking animal, you have a dress, (laughs) you're a princess. (laughs) Um, You know, and and the things of that. And so, yeah, I think there's, you know, they they did a great job with Moana. Um, I actually really, I I really like Moana's movie. It's a movie I actually enjoy watching over and over. Oh, yeah. Um, Which I think is surprising because a lot of times Disney movies don't, aren't really good watching repeatedly. Yeah, I actually Um, don't think Frozen has aged that well. Like, I saw it again a couple months ago. The kids happened to have it on. I'm like, eh, I'm kind of done with this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some of that may also just be because it became so pervasive. It was such a phenomenon. What's interesting right now, so my daughter's actually reading. There's a novelization called Frozen Heart. Uh, which is basically the novelization, and it's a substantial book. I mean, you're talking like the size of a Harry Potter type book. Which, just as an aside, Frozen is a take on a prior novel. Yes, and so now we have a novelization, well, a prior short story, technically. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so, Hans Christian Andersen yeah, story. Yeah, Hans Christian Andersen story. But the the thing that is, is it gives a lot more detail. Um, and one of the things is, so we're we're still early on in it. We actually are just about to approach the coronation festival, but it goes into great detail about the interaction between Anna and Elsa. And the particular scene that I thought was very interesting is Anna waking up the day after the trolls mm-hmm. and what she remembers. Yeah, because they really had to gloss over that. To yeah, it's, a, it's really kind of a cool like scene to read, where it's this idea of she remembers it snowing. And, you know, mm-hmm. being a sledding accident and not sure what happened and why is Elsa not being hurt. And the, the idea of how the memory got changed, you know, they, they mentioned that in the movie of the, we're going to change the memory but keep the fun and the idea of how the memory got changed. And one of the things that's kind of ongoing in conjunction with it is Anna being very confused mm-hmm. of really what happened here and, and not understanding what's going on and that being an important aspect. And even the interaction she has with Elsa, the interaction she has with her parents and knowing the story, that it's written in a way that you know the story that's mm-hmm. happening, and, and you get the, you know, her parents glance at each other, and you know why. Yeah. You know, but it's one of those things where I think it's a, it's written from honest perspective, at least so far, and it's a very good story of just sort of, you know, like, what is this like? What does this mean? And the fact that she's just confused, she doesn't know what it is. It also, interestingly enough, goes quite a bit into Han's backstory, oh, really? <laughs> um, which is really interesting. They, they're making him out to be, so far at least, a much more sympathetic character hmm. um, than he definitely is in the movie. And I'm curious as to where they're going to go with this. Well, so not not all of these uh, adaptations have been quite as well received. And and the, the incident that really gave rise to uh, Kirk and I's idea to do this episode in the first place involves a video game called Civilization. And, and actually, Actually, it's the sixth edition of this. Yep. So Civilization Six or Civ Six for Source or for short. If you've uh, if you never played any of the Civilization games, the original came out in the '80s. It's basically a turn-based strategy game where you begin as uh, an ancient people in the year 4000. You found a city, and then you start researching 4000 technology. BC, right? 4000 BC, yeah. Uh, you start researching technologies. You build armies. You defend and conquer. Uh, build up culture, and uh, you play the Civilization from uh, discovering writing all the way up until uh, going into space and and beyond. So, uh, there's many ways to win the game. You can win by conquest, which is the traditional way you win strategy games. But uh, Civ was, was hailed because it had an alternate victory condition, which was a science victory. You could uh, research science, build a spaceship, and launch a ship to Alpha Centauri, which uh, would also allow you to win the game peacefully, which, uh, you know, in the 80s, having a peaceful way to conquer the world <laughs> was, was a novelty. Yeah, definitely a novelty. Uh, in, later, in later editions, they added other ways to win. You can win through cultural dominance. You can win through religious dominance. Uh, and most of them have had a way to win through diplomacy uh, by being elected secretary general of the UN or something like that. That 
that aspect is not in the current version of Civilization. I'm not sure why not, but uh, it's usually been there. And this is a common thing, too. I think we're talking about Civilization. Civ- Civ- the Civ series is by far the most famous sort of version yeah. of this. There are a number of other games that came out with this. Uh, Microsoft came out with Age of Empires, yep. uh, sort of a similar type of game as to what it was. There's a number of these. And what I think is interesting to also point out, most of these start at, at really sort of Stone Age man in yeah. many respects. And they usually go beyond current technology. Yeah. So they usually do go to the idea of to like project a little space bit missions. Forward, yeah. yeah, project forward. So uh, now, when you when you play Civ, you have to pick which civilization civilization you want to play. You can make up your own, which is what I always used to do, because uh, I thought that was more fun. Uh, but uh, in, in in more recent games, that's not really an option. You have to pick a pre-made civilization to play. And in the first version, the focus on which civilizations you could be was was very Western centric. Yep. You know, obviously you're going to release a game to the Americas, then you have to have America, yep. and you're going to have uh, other major markets too. So Japan, China, India, uh, most major European countries were all represented. And then there are a couple of, of what I would call throwaways from history. Uh, Greece is always there. Rome is always there. Uh, Babylon often is. I think the original also had Mongolia, the Aztecs, and uh, the Zulus. So there was some representation of different cultures around the world. But I think even your comment there, you sort of said, you know, sort of throwaways in conjunction with that. These were cultures that were very hard to play. They were, uh, yeah. Because they basically sort of didn't really fit necessarily with the, the concept of the game was, yep. which was quite frankly European conquest. But, and we, Kirk and I were talking about this the other day. There was also a bug in the game. <laughs> so India, the, the leader for India was Gandhi, and due to a bug in the game, he was supposed to be very peaceful and passive, but due to basically uh, an integer rollover error, <laughs> um, at certain points when Gandhi got to democracy, he would become incredibly aggressive and nuke everybody <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and I remember playing games and be like, why does Gandhi always want to nuke all my cities? Um, it's become a running gag that yes. Gandhi, even now in these games, is depicted as extremely nuke-happy. Uh, in fact, it's like one of his hidden policies in Civilization VI is once he gets nukes, he's going to nuke you, uh, which, you know, uh, th- that by itself seems pretty culturally insensitive. <laughs> it's very culturally insensitive when you think about it. Um, Anyway, uh, and so in the more recent versions of Civ, they've added unique features or abilities to each civilization. For example, uh, England and Scandinavia are designed to, to conquer the seas. Japan can make samurais. Uh, war Fran- culture. Yeah, war, warlike. Uh, France has uh, you know more, more cultural aspects of the civilization, museums and, and artists and things Rome like had, that. Rome has religion too, doesn't it? Isn't that the— Rome's thing was it was usually the empire. It was the empire, um, okay. always the ability to expand quickly. Uh, lots of trade. Uh, they, they have, since Civilization II, made more of an effort to include indigenous peoples. Uh, they've had, over the years, the Sioux, the Iroquois. Um, they've had a lot of different Mesoamerican cultures. So the Incas have been in there. The Mayas have. The Aztecs have always been in there. Uh, Montezuma, you never want Montezuma as your neighbor in that game <laughs> because he will attack you. Um, so uh, earlier this year, uh, the company that publishes Civ uh, Six released a new expansion, which included a, a new civilization they've never had before, the Cree, yep. uh, which is a, a Canadian uh, a First Nations uh, people. Um, I don't know much about the Cree, uh, but their their leader is a 19th century uh, a tribal leader named, uh, the English version of his name is Poundmaker. I have seen his name in his native culture. I won't even attempt to pronounce it because I will butcher it. Uh, but when the when the Cree were announced, the, the character of Poundmaker was sort of designed to, to work diplomatically. He's shown as being a, a young, healthy man. He's got sort of a a 19th century dress on, and um, 
his strength is, is forming alliances and, and engaging in, in, in uh, diplomacy. Not really uh, a civilization in a game that's built for conquest, although I've played them. You can. Uh, you can defeat people with them. They're pretty good. Uh, but uh, diplomacy is where they really shine. Well, the, the current headman of the Cree people, his name's Milton uh, Tatusis, I think I'm pronouncing that right, uh, heard about it and, and didn't care for the way they were portrayed. Uh, and I got a couple quotes from him that I thought were interesting. He said the game, quote, perpetuates this myth that First Nations had similar values that the colonial culture has, and that is one of conquering other peoples and accessing their land. That is totally not in concert with our traditional ways and worldview, end quote. And then another quote he says, quote, I think we would have been honored to have Poundmaker used in a game like this, but in a culturally appropriate manner, not in this manner, end quote. And he goes on to talk about how, you know, um, he, he wishes they would have approached the Cree people to ask them how they like to be portrayed in this game. And I got one more quote that Kirk and I talked about on the way over here that I thought was fascinating. He said, quote, They should have inquired about our local cultural protocols. They should have done the honorable thing and at least offered tobacco. End quote. So we were talking about that, and we're like, tobacco? I mean, that almost sounds offensive to me, like some sort of stereotype about, about you know, peace pipes and things like that yeah. with, with native cultures. But we were looking into this more. Uh, the exchange of tobacco was a traditional uh, cultural protocol for a lot of indigenous peoples. And, so and when, apparently particularly the curry. Yeah, which, and, and again, it kind of proves his point, right, that I read this, and I'm like, what's he talking about? That sounds offensive. It's not. It no. sounds offensive to me as a white guy who doesn't know anything about this culture. Yeah, and, that's, and I think the, the thing that I think is also very interesting about this is the fact that, you know, you have a game which did include a cultural tradition and tried, presumably, to, you know, follow the idea of the cultural tradition by doing diplomacy. Yeah, I think we can assume that Take-Two is trying to be respectful and accurate yep. and, and make this fit into a game. And yet, you know, as sort of pointed out here, they, they sort of missed a basic a basic tenement yeah. of, of asking permission in the first place. Yeah, and... and you know, and what what they object to is not that they're in the game, but how? Because he, he's he's right. I mean, even if you win a peaceful victory in civilization, you still have to start out by you know, conquering unclaimed lands yep. uh, that that are currently controlled by what's called barbarians, or little tribal villages of of uh, horsemen and, and and bowmen and warriors that come out. You have to fight them off, destroy their villages, uh, and, and cl- claim the land, found cities, and, and do things that basically sound like what happened in Europe throughout. You know, yep. the, the first. You know, uh, four thousand years of human history, right? Of, of like human European, hi- European, European history. Yeah. But you know, obviously, when the Europeans came to the West, that wasn't what had happened. I mean, there were some cities and civilizations, but most of North America was pretty much unclaimed by anybody. Yeah. There was a lot of nomadic tribal cultures. So, putting yourselves in the shoes of Mister Tatusis. Doesn't it kind of sound like functionally in the game were the barbarians that are being eradicated? Yeah, the, the thing that I think is very interesting with it, I think his, his comment, I think, is very sort of, um, you know, telling. And that he says, you know, the idea that it perpetuates that the First Nations had similar values and the, that the colonial culture has. Essentially, I, I think what his argument is, is by being put into a game which essentially says the win condition involves at least some colonial culture. You have to culture, do some of this. You have to do some of this. There's an offensive nature of the fact that... that they don't value this at all. That effectively the win yeah. condition of this game is a failure. Yeah. For, for, for to, to win the game playing the Cree, you have to do something that's fundamentally at odds with the Cree's with cultural the Cree norms. Culture norms. And yeah, and I think that's that's the 
sort of real key here as to what it is. And that's what we, we sort of why we came up with this topic. We have here a, a clear sort of disagreement in conjunction with it. How on earth did you make these two things reconcile each other? Now, the obvious sort of choice is they could have gone to the Korea. They could have said, hey, would you like to be portrayed? How would you like to be portrayed in this? Quite frankly, they may have come up with an extremely interesting win yeah. condition that had nothing to do with I, conquest. I, I would have loved to have seen, had they had this conversation, <laughs> what they could have come up with to make something that's completely different. Yeah. Because there have been examples of this in the past. They had, um, oh gosh, who was it? Vienna, maybe? Uh-huh. There was there was one civ in the past that could not make new cities. The only way they could expand land is through trade and uh, sort of culturally taking over other towns by, by extensive trade to the point where the cultures they're trading with just adopt their own culture. Yep. So there is a precedent for different, very radically different game mechanics that are challenging, and uh, I think that would have been way more interesting, actually. Yeah, quite frankly, I have to agree that it's, it could have been very interesting. Now, it may have been a programming nightmare for them to have to oh, add sure. in something like that. But yeah, the idea... Of of looking at it and saying, can we put in a radically different wind condition based upon effectively that that the wind condition of every other nation is wrong, yeah. and and wouldn't that be an interesting sort of you know way to play the game? And and quite frankly, I think it would have made a very good game. It would have mm-hmm. made a very intriguing concept. Um, but I think that the hard part with it is is when you're looking at the idea of a video game, it, there's always combat. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are very, very it's few a strategy games game, that don't, you know? in some and respects, involve combat, whether ritualized or whatever you want to see it as, as being an aspect of it. It's a strategy game based on world history, which, which is clearly marked by extensive armed conflict between people. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, you have to have that element in the game for it to be a game about the history of mankind. But it's it's a fair point. What do you do with cultures that you want to represent and include, but don't share in in that part of of yeah. history? They, they they were more victims of that thing rather than than taking part. In it. So yep. it's it's really tricky and it's um it, it shakes out differently for other cultures. So Scotland was also included in, the, in this expansion pack, and and we would never think twice. No one's going to go to the Scottish and say, "How do you want to be depicted?" Yeah. Right? And and for, for one, we as people who grew up in the Western canon w- would never perceive that we even needed to do that. Nobody owns the Scottish culture. We can just do what we want with it. I mean, Disney did that. We had uh, Brave, right? Um, and and you know, and we would not expect most people in Scotland to be offended by the depiction, regardless of of how offensive it may have been. And and if anybody was, honestly, I think most people wouldn't care. They'd say, it's a video game. Get over it, right? Yeah. Um, and so the Scottish in Civ Six, that one of their special abilities is they can build golf courses, <laughs> which which seems, I mean, it makes sense. You know, it seems Andrews. a little silly, though, when you think about it. It does. I always thought, why wouldn't you give the Scottish the ability to make distilleries, you know, and have, like, whiskey <laughs> and scotch? That That's, to me, more interesting. Now, I, I think there's— Of course, if you really want to get into sort of one of their great contributions, it would actually be looms and weaving. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the steam engine, right? Um, I, I, you know— I, I think probably the reason why they went with golf as opposed to uh, whiskey is because they don't want to include alcohol in a game that's marketed to teenagers. <laughs> probably. But, you know, but there's tobacco in the game. I mean, you can find tobacco as a natural resource. So um, I don't know. Um, but you know, so the Scot- but the Scottish traditions, you know, Scotland's part of the Western canon. It's part yeah. of Western thought and Western philosophy. Uh, there's the Scottish Enlightenment. So I think to some extent, the the norms and values of Scottish culture are already on some level baked into uh, the 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 mechanics of the game. Scotland was involved in armed conflict like everybody else was, yeah. and was involved in expansion and culture and and shares in the same sort of uh, Western tradition. So it's a little easier to just make a game about this, and it's not going to bother anybody there, really, because that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah, I think you've got a little bit of, of less of the idea of it's, it, they're still Western European. Yeah. 
I mean, we can look at it and say, you know, yes, they have different cultural differences. There's definitely some disagreement. The Romans didn't there, think so, exactly but it is. <laughs> but you know, you've still got, in many respects, Western European, and it bakes into that culture. What we're really talking about when we're talking about, you know, the Cree here and certain other civilizations, is those that that just have no connection to yeah. any of the the sort of Western European, and and we've really got to get, quite frankly, out of Europe and Asia, um, yeah. and in many respects, out of Africa, at least to the impact that was yeah. impl- influenced by Europe to find any of those. Yeah. Um, and, you know, are they out there? There's definitely a lot out there. Unfortunately, a lot of probably have been lost just yep. because of, of of changes in culture and things like that. But you definitely see that type of thing coming into there. And the, the fact that the game is based, in some sense, the, the, the win conditions of video games are based upon Western traditions. <laughs> you know, the idea of defeat, of conquest. Um, you know, there are very few video games which don't involve... You know, some mm-hmm. form of armed conflict, some form of defeat or conquest. There's a lot of discussion of violence in video games and things like that. You know, there are puzzle games that are definitely out there, mm-hmm. but we see those as being different, as not necessarily yeah. being the the same type of thing as video games involving conquest or warfare. So, so flip the script here. I mean, just and, and trying to put yourself because it's hard to do this, right? You can't really put yourself in, in their shoes because we're not we're not, yeah, we're not. And we don't we don't but, have the cultural flip the background. Script. Flip the script and say somebody makes a game simulating you know nomadic uh, indigenous tribes, um, and then you can play as America in that context. Wouldn't it just fundamentally not feel like it's America? Yeah, I mean, I think you, I think that's right. right? You feel like, like this you're isn't really thing. us. Yeah. And that, that, that's got to be how they feel, right? So th- this is one of those areas where, you know, as, as an IP matter, it wouldn't occur to the game makers to go ask anybody for permission yeah. to use their culture. Um and this this again reflects sort of that the, these things are, are are baked in. Well, we're running really long here, so we're gonna we're gonna scoot ahead. I think we had a lot more to talk about here on on, on like traditional medicines and uh, real estate rights and things like that. One thing I wanted to mention um, though is uh, we we do see these concepts of how differences in these traditions and these rules are reflected in in sci-fi and fantasy literature. And we've got two examples. One is there's a Star Trek: The Next Generation episode. I think it's in the first or second season where Wesley is on some planet and like steps in a flower garden. Yep. And it's sentenced to die, right? It's sentenced to die because you're not allowed to do it, and it's a literally no, no, uh, you know, recourse law. It just is. Yeah, and that's something that you know the, because the society doesn't have the concept of proportional justice. Yep. There is you either follow the rules or you die. Yeah. And therefore, it's an extremely lawful society because criminals just don't stay around. Yeah, and it's, and it's any breaking of the law, regardless yeah. of how minor. Yeah, and so the whole the whole point of that of that episode is the tension between respecting this culture, but also refusing to allow their rules to do something that the the Federation finds is completely unjust. Yep. And in the end, Captain Picard, uh, I I, th- I think violates the Prime Directive and says, "We're not going to 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 let you do this." Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a, a lot of the sort of breakdown. You get you get that type of thing. I think occur a lot. There's a start. Trek original season one called The Apple um, which is generally regarded as one of the worst episodes actually <laughs> of the original Star Trek but where they so beam down to, to a planet that they see as being peaceful but it's actually an ongoing war and they're deemed to have been bombed and all died so they have to go report so they can be killed Yeah, you know and, and it's the same issue in conjunction with that where they said well this is a much more effective way to carry out the war because it means that there is no collateral damage mm-hmm. but you know they sort of look at it and say yeah but had we have known this was going on we wouldn't have come here you know, and, and it's this clash of culture. Again, I mean, that's something that's explored a lot, quite frankly, in Star Trek is the idea of these clash of differences of culture. The other good one also from Star Trek is the Cardassian legal system from Deep Space Nine. We actually talked about doing a whole episode on this, but uh, in, in, in the there's an episode where I think uh, a Chief O'Brien gets arrested. Uh, he's spying, basically, and he's arrested uh, on Cardassia Prime. And uh, he has a lawyer appointed to him, a public defender, and he has a trial. Um, and he keeps talking about, you know, how are we going to win this? And his lawyer gives him this funny look and says – 
you don't win. You're already guilty. The trial is just to show you what evidence proves it. <laughs> you know, it's not a trial of fact to see whether you're innocent or not. You're not. I you know. I know. You've been arrested. Yeah. So the the trial is just a, a show trial to to demonstrate that the state is right, not to prove that the state is right. And so you have the same. I think I forget how it resolves. I think they break him out or something, or they they blackmail Gold Ducat. I forget what happens, but. That's another example of uh, there's no presumption of innocence. It's a presumption of guilt, and there's no way to prove innocence. Yeah. You're just guilty because you've been accused. Yeah, there's some really interesting things to that, and I think you get into those types of things. That, again, science fiction likes to explore this idea of clash of culture. What we're really looking at is the idea of how do you then bump into clash of culture in conjunction with – you know, legal systems that aren't necessarily sort of directly in conflict on like a, a criminal type of thing where you can look at it and say, hey, you've got, you know, for lack of a better term, individual rights, and we're mm-hmm. sort of coming back into there. The the thing that I think is very interesting when you do talk about the idea of like the Wesley episode in The Next Generation, you're really dealing with Wesley's individual rights, mm-hmm. you know, and you really see the, the sort of Star Trek crew being very focused on that, that yeah. individually he needs to do this. As a society, as you know, what it is for the Federation, it's probably better off to let Wesley, you know, get sentenced than die. Better for the fans too. You know. <laughs> Sorry, Will. You know I love you. We all um, love you, Will. It's the you know Wesley was not a great character, but you're however a cool dude. Yeah. No, Will, um, Will Will did not write that dialogue, so no no blame to Will Wheaton. <laughs> oh yeah, and, and in, in that society in that episode too, the, their social interest is in seeing justice done in the laws and force. Because if this one person gets away with it, well then every interloper that comes to the planet can violate the rules with impunity, right? And their yeah. social order breaks down. So uh, Star Trek was always really good about introducing these kind of quandaries and how they get resolved. And that's the kind of thing I wish we saw more of in sci now. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think sci-fi has unfortunately turned a little bit into to fighting aliens it too is. much. It has all gotten turned into action. Yeah, there's been some good ones. I mean, District 9. Yeah, that was good. Just fantastic Which also turned into action schlock at the end. But. Yeah. Uh, but the first 90% yeah. was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, we're, we're going really long here, so let's get our Han Solo uh, predictions covered, and then I think we'll skip questions this week and, uh, and save those for next week. Um, so we had 10 predictions. Uh, we'll go through them really quickly. Uh, prediction and this number- is the spoilers time if you want uh, to yes. turn off if you have not seen the movie and don't want to know our you predictions. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Disney needs your money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, number one, they mentioned the Kelso Run. Yes, yes people obviously. Said it's, yes. Kind of, it's like the central core of the movie. Uh, number two, we find out where Han gets the dice. They didn't really show us an origin for the dice. No, he just kind of had them. You definitely see the origin of the fact that he gives them to her. You know, yeah. that's an element aspect of it, and they're, they're giving him back, but you don't know where he has them. Yeah, we both said true. That was false. Uh, Han's love interest dies. She did not. Yeah, uh, I said it was gonna. He was. She was going to. But yeah, I, I said no. So I got a point there. Uh, Han and Chewie already know each other. We both said false. It was false. Um. Uh, number five, there's some mention of Han dumping Jabba's cargo. I said I hoped they didn't do that, but I thought they would, uh, but they did not. Although, Kirk, you did say you thought they were going to introduce Han to Jabba towards the end. Yep. Pretty close. Yeah, they definitely did introduce him to, you know, the idea of the huts. And you yeah, know, going, going the to huts Tatooine and, at least. Yep. Uh, Greedo appears. We both said true. I didn't see him, did you? So we, we both said false to this, though I believe there was, and I'm going to get which kind of alien he is wrong. I believe there was one Rodian. as part of the, uh, Rodian, yeah. yeah. I believe he, there was a Rodian as part of the gang that they yes. encounter at the end. We don't know who it is, and it definitely doesn't look necessarily like Greedo. It's like an orange one or something. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah. Uh, number seven, uh, there's a reference to Bespin or Tabana Gas. And here was my comment. I said, I think Lando's going to be at the gambling table where somebody talks about it, and Lando is dismissive. I think that was pretty close. I think someone mentioned mining. Yeah. I think he, well, I think he was involved somehow in mining or the loss of money from mining. Yeah. But it definitely wasn't specifically Tabana Gas. But nobody said Tabana Gas. Nobody said yeah. Bespin. So uh, we, uh, we both had said true, but that one was false. We just said it's false. Uh, eight, less than 12 parsecs remark from the new hope from A New Hope has to be explained.
explained. Kirk said false. He yep. thought it would be referenced but not explained. <laughs> I said they'd explain it, but I hope they didn't. Yep. But they did. It so was I got definitely explained, no question. Uh, Millennium Falcon fan service in the form of at least two of the following. Smuggling compartment? Yes. yes. Hydrospanner? No. Gas masks? No. Quad cannon? Debatable. Sort of. I mean, you see, the, you see the control of it. It's a single cannon. It does get broken off. Yep. So there's the idea that your place. But the last one puts it over the edge. Broken hyperdrive <laughs> yeah, joke. No yep. question about broken hyperdrive joke. <laughs> so Kirk said true. I said false. And finally, the love interest in Leia is foreshadowed. There's really nothing about it. There's that. really nothing about it at all. So the total, Kirk 5, me 5. It's a tie. It's a tie fighter. It's a tie, a tie fighter. All right, so there you go. Um, right, one I will actually put out there, I just mentioned this to Ben earlier, and I was going to do it for, well, actually, people. Um, the the reference at the very end to um, to the love interest, and it's, her name's escaping right now. Uh, Kira? Kira. Uh, Kira. Um, Kira. Daenerys. <laughs> I thought there was some reference to her being associated with the Emperor in the expanded universe, but I cannot figure out what it was was referencing. For some yeah, we were reason. trying to figure that out. That she was like the Emperor's consort. Yeah, I thought she, she might be the Emperor's some... consort or something along those lines, or an Emperor's advisor. She's so, in Dark Empire, maybe. I don't yeah. Know. So I was going to put it out there to the the people. Well, actually, people, if there's any reference to that name that I think is where I'm getting that from, or if I'm just con- uh, confusing it with a similar name. Um, the closest I could think of is Mara Jade from the Zahn yep. novels, but that's clearly not the same person. But that's not the same person, and it's not what I'm thinking of in conjunction with it. And this was sort of a throwaway statement that this person existed, and so I'm wondering if there may be some reference to it, because I also thought that that person had a reference to having a prior gangster history. Hmm. So that's the other thought with it. So anyway, if people are into the expanded universe, if there's any reference out there, I'd love to know what it is. So let us know on one of our various channels. All right. Well, we, we've gone very long today, so we'll wrap this up. This is another topic we could go over for a, a long time because there's a lot more that's sort of geek culture specific about how these uh, these issues have played out that would be fun to talk about. Well, anyway, so so there's the music, and it is time to go. If you have questions, comments, or topic ideas, you can send your thoughts to us on Twitter at LGGpod or email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. You can also talk to us on our Facebook page, search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, and find us there. You can subscribe to this podcast. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please give us a review. That helps us uh, find people and helps people find us with the search engine optimization and all that sort of thing. You can also find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. Next time, the topic is up in the air, but we really like to do something with either music or, uh, or trying to bring Charlotte back on the cover rights of publicity. Yep. So that's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 